Hi, my name is Jenny Morgan. I'm the director of Baltimore Greenworks. Um, on behalf of the Enoch Pratt, we'd like to welcome you to the first installment of the 2015 Sustainable Speaker Series. Um, all I'm going to say is uh, we have a schedule of some of our proposed programs from our 2015 Baltimore Green Week that's coming up in April. And um, we're glad everybody came out tonight. I'm going to turn it over to Thomas Myers from Food and Water Watch, who's going to introduce the speakers and tell you a little bit about what's going on in Maryland. Great. Thank you. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, like Jenny said, I'm the Maryland fracking organizer with Food and Water Watch. My name's Thomas. Um, and hopefully you all have heard that we're working on a campaign with about 100 other organizations, some of whom are represented tonight, um, to pass a long-term moratorium on fracking in Maryland. Uh, so there's legislation that was just introduced this last week called the Protect Our Health and Communities Act. Um, we're putting pressure on, on legislators to support the bill, but we already have over 50 co-sponsors in the House and Senate. Um, so be sure to fill out one of these blue petition postcards. Some folks did on the way in, but sh be sure to fill one out um, on your way out. Those will get to delivered to legislators in, in a couple weeks. Um, and if you want to get more involved with the campaign, just check the volunteer box um, or check in with me. My contact information is out there as well. Uh, but thank you all so much for, for coming out. Um, so we're going to be hearing from the authors of the book, obviously. Um, so in The Real Cost of Fracking, Michelle Bomberger, who's a veterinarian, and Robert Oswald, who's a pharmacologist, show how hydraulic fracturing endangers the environment and harms people, pets, and livestock. Uh, they reveal the harrowing experiences of small farmers who have lost their animals and their livelihoods, and of rural farmers whose property values have plummeted as their towns have been invaded by drillers. Uh, Michelle is the author of two books on first aid for cats and dogs, and Robert is a professor of molecular medicine at Cornell. And they also serve on the advisory board of physicians, scientists, engineers for healthy energy. Um, so let's give them a, a big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you for coming out tonight. I understand there's going to be some freezing rain, and I hope everybody gets home safely. Uh, but it's, your weather is not as bad as ours, I have to say. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to talk a little bit about our book today. Um, and this is, this is the book. But what I want to do is give a, a little bit of an introduction uh, to the subject and some of the things we think about. And then I'll let Michelle talk about... Um, you know about the meat of the book, and she'll do a little bit of reading, and then I'll talk a little bit more later. Um, okay. All right. Well, one of the things that is the big backdrop here when we start talking about gas drilling is really it's part of our whole the whole way of we use energy and and particularly fossil fuels, and that plays into a, a bigger question. And I just wanted to start with the bigger question, and that is, is climate change? Um, and I'll, t I'll tell you in a minute why, why I think what we're talking about is really important for climate change. But uh, it was reported that 2014 was the warmest year on record. And on record means since people started taking detailed measurements, which was some, sometime around 1880. Uh, that, that statement is a little bit fuzzy because what it, the true statement is it's probably the warmest year 
on record. It's hard to know exactly what the average temperature is over the globe, but probably one of these years out here since, since 2000 has been the warmest year on record. Now, when we talk about, when we talk about climate change, what we're, what we're talking about is not what's happening in our backyard. So if you look what happened, happened in Baltimore here, Baltimore was actually colder last year than the average for the last 130 or 40 years. Well, what's important is not the temperature in our backyard, but the average temperature over the whole world. And that's what determines the climate change. That, what, that's what determines sea level rise. That's what determines uh, what's going to become of the Chesapeake Bay, you know, how much the waters are going to rise there, what islands will be lost, etc. So, one of the things that everybody, you know, however you think about climate change, whether you believe in man-made climate change or not, everybody agrees that the temperature changes, it goes up and down with time. Uh, this, was a, this is a graph of temperature that's in red over the last 400,000 years. Okay, and you can see it goes up and down. There are times when there's massive global warming really fast, and then it cooled off again. And, but what's interesting is that it followed the carbon dioxide level. The carbon dioxide level is this sort of diffuse uh, gray graph that goes through here, and the methane level in the atmosphere is this black line. Now, methane is the major component of natural gas. And it's natural in, the, in, in our atmosphere. It's always been in our atmosphere. The, the, um, the Earth is leaking it uh, all the time. And it goes up and down. Okay, so what has changed in the last, well, last either 200 years or 20 years, however you look at it, the level of carbon dioxide has gone up dramatically. We're about... 400 ppm now. We're higher than it's been in the last 400,000 years. And the level of methane is way higher than it's been in the last 400,000 years. Now, why do I talk about methane so much? Well, because, because for example, carbon dioxide is present at what's called 400 parts per million, but methane's only there at about 1.8 parts per million. Well, what's important here is that when methane is there in the atmosphere, it does about a hundredfold, it's about a hundredfold more potent, or maybe 120-fold more potent than carbon dioxide. Okay, so the good thing about methane is it goes away pretty fast. Carbon, carbon dioxide, it takes a century to go away, but methane goes away in about 10 years or so. But we've been pumping it into the atmosphere at such a rate that it's at an enormous level right now, and that's because we keep pumping it into the air. And when we talk about the process we're going to talk about today, gas drilling, when we call it a clean burning fuel, we have to think about the fact that a large portion of this rise in methane is due to the fact that we've been extracting natural gas, inventing it into the atmosphere by all the different steps along the way from the well to your home. 
okay? And when we compare that, when we think about that, it's not as clean burning fuel as, we, as we'd like it to be. When you're burning it in your stove, yeah, that's cleaner than putting coal in your stove and burning that. But when you think about the leaks of methane in the atmosphere throughout the whole process, the picture is not so clear. Okay. So let's talk about the um, process we came to, to discuss today, and that is, well, we call it hydraulic fracturing or fracking. Um, I think that's a, that's a kind of an unfortunate term, because what we're really concerned with, as I, as I talked about just in terms of methane leaks, what we're, trying to, what we're really concerned about is the whole life cycle of the process. Where, where are the problems? Uh, how can those problems be solved? And, uh, you, know, you know, is this the way to go forward? Anyway, let's just talk about some of the steps and some of the steps where we can run into problems. Uh, we know from uh, that, that what's absolutely necessary for this process, by the way, let me just describe the process. I'm sure there might be, a, everybody knows about this, but there might be one or two people that haven't heard much about it. What we're talking about is drilling down into the earth Okay, and typically we're going, they're going after shale layers that contain natural gas. Uh, it's not necessarily shale that layers that they're going after, they can go after la layers that have coal, they can go after sandstone, etc. But, but what's really brought it to the attention is the shale gas uh, boom in this country. And so they turn their bit horizontally to go along the shale layers they perforate the pipe with explosives, and then they put high volumes of fluids in there to fracture the rocks and sand to keep those fractures open. That releases the gas that comes back up to the surface. So when we think about the life cycle of this process, part of it starts out in Wisconsin where they're mining the sand. Uh, now this sand is you know, basically just taken by mountaintop removal, just like coal is mined. So if you go out to the sand mining areas, they're just wiping out hills, completely wiping out hills, and taking the sand. Okay, that sand, for the most part, isn't a huge health risk, but there is part of it that is an extremely big cause for concern. That is, there are small particles that come along with the sand, small particles of silica that comes with the sand that's very small, about 2.5 microns. It's about a hundredth of a millimeter. And, they, and this sand is, when you're out there, you see it's blowing everywhere. If you're on a well pad where they're using it, it's blowing everywhere. And those small particles can get into your lungs and can cause a disease called silicosis. So that's a serious lung disease of fatal consequences. And it's something that we really have to think about. The other thing that's important in areas that, where they're drilling is a huge amount of trucking. You can get um, trucked in, in rural areas. You see traffic. You can be held up in traffic for hours because of the truck traffic. Drilling um, can uh, contaminate the aquifer. We were on a radio show uh, this morning with um, Terry Engelder, who was the person who cal calculated how much natural gas is in the Marcellus Shale, and he said that yes, indeed, when you drill, 
the drilling chemicals can contact the aquifer. Um, he, he, he said that it wasn't a problem because they're green, but in, in some cases um, they have used things that people would not necessarily want in their drinking water. The other step is hydraulic fracturing. That's where they break open the rock. This is what, by the way, has been banned in New York State for shale gas drilling. Uh, at least hydraulic fracturing with large volumes of water. This is done with wa about 5 million gallons of water per fracture. Okay, so they, they have to use a lot of water, either fresh water or recycled water, to uh, pump into the wells. So it takes a lot of water out of the hydrologic cycle. Uh, then what comes out of, out of the well after that sometimes gets in store, stored in these ponds called impoundments. Uh, sometimes it gets stored in, in, in uh, big uh, steel containers as well. But when it gets stored in these impoundments, we know a number of cases where these impoundments have leaked and caused major problems. They're condensate tanks all the time. And then flaring is when the gas is released into the atmosphere and burned. There are two ways that they get rid of some excess gas and that is either venting into, into the atmosphere, but then that releases a lot of methane into the atmosphere with all the problems we talked about, or they burn it like this. And that's sort of been described as a jet engine going off. Uh, typically, it doesn't last for very long, but in places like uh, North Dakota, and it's been described in other places, um, it's gone on for quite some time. In North Dakota, they, they drill for oil, and natural gas comes with it. They just burn all the natural gas and, because it's a waste product. They don't want it around. They don't keep it. Uh, in other places, it, they, it may be flared for a few days or up to a month at times. Uh, this is a really difficult thing for people to deal with. Uh, we've talked to people who have been in their homes not far from these, and they, they report that their windows are rattling continuously during this. Uh, compressor stations and pipelines are used to move the gas from the well and uh, eventually to you or to export or, or throughout the country. Processing plants are used to, ex to separate out what's wanted and what's not wanted, but they produce a lot of pollution. And then this is something that's near and dear to our heart. They, there have to be storage places for uh, either liquefied natural gas or liquid pro, uh, petroleum gas and this is something that we're concerned with a lot. They're trying to store it now underneath this lake here which is about uh, 20 miles from our home. It's called Seneca Lake. It's one of the Finger Lakes and they want to put it in salt caverns in, in fairly seismically active areas where we've known that the salt uh, caverns have collapsed. There are also LNG terminals. This is liquefied natural gas terminals for, they say for import, but most of them are for export. One of them, of course, is Cove Point, not far from here. Another one is Port Ambrose that they're trying to put in uh, right in New York Harbor. Uh, the reason for these terminals is to move the gas out to other countries and, of course, increase the price of gas for us. Um, and finally, one of the biggest concerns that, that we have, at least, is that, um, you know, New York and Pennsylvania 
are the home of the oil and gas industry. The first gas well was drilled in New York in the early part of the 19th century. The first oil wells were, were drilled in Pennsylvania in the mid-19th century. So we have oil and gas wells everywhere. And m many of them aren't, we don't even know about because they were drilled so long ago. Uh, most of these have been abandoned and have not been properly plugged. This has two implications. One is that uh, they're leaking, a lot of them are leaking methane into the atmosphere. We've seen this with our own eyes and with our own methane detector. And the other thing is, if they're unknown and if there's drilling near these, they, they form a nice conduit to the surface and to our aquifers if a fracture contacts one of these wells. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is turn it over to Michelle, and she's going to tell you more about the book and, and more about uh, what happens when, when we have problems in these processes. Thank you, Robert, and thank you uh, to everyone for coming out. I just want to um, say that we do have a handout. I'm not sure where Teresa, if Teresa's in the room, where she put it. It's out on one of the tables. And that handout has uh, a link, has, has links to all of our, our research that we've done, our articles. Um, so if you're interested in taking a look at that, just go ahead and pick up a, a handout. Um, we're not going to be talking about our research so much tonight. We really want to concentrate on the book, but we're happy to entertain questions. I'm going to be moving pretty fast through um, the cases. I'll talk about a few cases and do some reading, but I do want to leave plenty of time for questions. Um, okay. so. Um, so, um, so the book is um, the book was really difficult to, to write because we had so many cases. I wanted to put at least 20 cases in this book. Um, the publisher said maybe 10. We finally got down to, to six was, was maximum. And, and it's because each case has so much information. We did a lot of documentation. We had a lot of information. We had a lot of updates and follow-ups. And we're still, in fact, taking them. In fact, our most recent research paper which I think is, is either just been released or will be released very soon, it's in press at least, uh, talks about a follow-up and so, uh, almost two, two year follow-up on these cases. So um, we had a lot of information and, and uh, we had to cut down on the number of cases. But um, there are a lot of these cases around. I get calls on, uh, from a lot of people who unfortunately we were not able to document their cases because they didn't send me the information that I requested. So, we're often, you oftentimes hear the industry uh, tell, tell you that our stuff is just anecdotal. Uh, an anecdote is a story. We go beyond that and, and pick up information on where the drilling and fracking occurred, where the wastewater impoundments were, where the processing plants, we map each site. We pick up environmental information, air, water, and soil testing, as well as health records on both animals and people. So I really get upset when people say that, and actually today, Terry Engelder, uh, said it, and I was not in the in the interview room, so I couldn't respond to him. But <laughs> I, I really got upset. Uh, so uh, at any rate, um, and, and so these are just the tip of the iceberg. Um, each case uh, is, is a little bit different, but there are threads that run through each case, and those threads are are farming and food safety, environmental justice. So even the companion animal people uh, that we discuss. They were really trying to, to uh, do everything they could on their own. Some of them kept chickens. Uh, some of them did, had bees, for instance. They were trying to uh, be sustainable and, and raise their own food. Uh, we broke them down 
uh, companion animal and food animal, for instance, by the uh, majority of animals that the people owned. Uh, the environmental justice we, we felt we had to put in because we had several striking cases of environmental justice uh, issues, although that is another thread that runs through the book. Okay, so the first one I'd like to, to discuss is one of the cases that initially drew me in to um, start looking into you know, what was going on here with, with fracking. This was, was and is still the only case that has, it, uh, is, has a quarantine put on it due to unconventional extraction. This occurred in uh, Tioga County, Pennsylvania in May of 2010. The Pennsylvania uh, DEP uh, put uh, a quarantine on this farm because a wastewater impoundment ruptured and leaked uh, wastewater into a pasture. That wastewater was tested, not completely, but it was tested for minerals and heavy metals and they found strontium and strontium can cause a lot of problems, especially if we, if those cows went to slaughter and you got some of that meat and ate it, then you could get, you could pick that up too. Um, the cows were exposed to the wastewater for several months. So what I'm gonna do is, is stop for a moment and I'm gonna read you the section of the book where the farmers discover that. Okay, so this is, this, this is uh, Mary and Charlie a few months before they reported the wastewater leak to the PADEP and the drilling company, Mary and Charlie had noticed several dark spots on the bank of the impoundment alongside the pasture. At first, they thought it was groundwater seeping into the pasture, but over the coming weeks, they noticed the spots expanding and the adjacent grass dying. By the time they ventured onto the pasture, hydraulic fracturing had ended and there was no one on the pad. It was May Day. 2010, and the farmers found themselves ankle deep in wastewater and surrounded by burnt grass. Hoof prints covered the flooded area, estimated by Charlie and Mary to be more than one half acre. The water was as deep as 20 inches in some spots and would eventually take the drillers three days to pump and remove. The Jamesons later learned that the liners of both the wastewater impoundment and the drilling muds pit had torn and that the rupture in the impoundment liner had caused the contaminated waste to burst through the wall and into the pasture where their cows grazed. Except for their two bulls, the Jamesons' entire herd was exposed to the wastewater leakage for as long as it had been occurring, likely two months or more. Okay, and I'm gonna read one more section. Um, I'm gonna read one more section. Um, uh, that talks about, um, you know, at the end, so what happened to this farm. So their, their cows suffered reproductive problems. I don't want to give the whole chapter away, uh, but they suffered reproductive problems, pretty severe ones over several seasons. Uh, okay, so as of July 2012, the Jameson's cattle seemed to be back to normal and sod was planted in the pasture to restore the hay fields. As he does every spring and summer, Charlie harvested his hay fields to provide feed for his cattle. It was then that he discovered that the staples used to lay the sod and the blasting wire left in the field contaminated his hay, rendering it useless. The drilling company, always the good neighbor, offered to buy the hay at half the going price. And those five additional wells that it planned to drill in the next few months, the company increased the size of the well pad to three acres and informed the Jamesons that the new plan is to drill a total of 10 wells on their property. As of late 2013, however, Mary and Charlie have lost thousands of dollars 
and have yet to receive a dime in royalties. The only gas that has been extracted from their land has been vented to the atmosphere or flared off into oblivion. And I, I'll just add one uh, uh, last thing, update. I just heard from these people about a month ago and they told us that the company uh, notified them that they are definitely going to be coming out soon and drilling those wells. Uh, they know that we want to come out if that happens again, and so they, they, they let us know that. Okay, so this was um, another uh, beef paddle case. This one uh, took, uh, occurred in Washington County, which is southwestern Pennsylvania, another intensively drilled area. Um, uh, this farm had two conventional gas wells on the property and two shale gas wells within one half mile. So this was an unusual case uh, for two reasons. One, it involved conventional wells. So these did, this did not involve horizontal high volume hydraulic fracturing right on the property. The other unusual thing about this case was that it was the only case that we have where the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection documented contamination due to drilling. And this was conventional, remember. Uh, this farmer had some basic water tests done like people usually do before drilling starts. And the, the, his iron and his manganese levels were within limits. Uh, after drilling, they were high. And so the uh, Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection ordered the company to give him water uh, for drinking water and for his cattle. Um, the, on, on a second well, that was one well, the second well that was drilled on the property had a blowout during the drilling process, so that means they lost control of the well. They had a bubble, a bunch of gas that just blew out, and when that gas blew out, it pushed up the muds and fluids like a geyser, uh, and, it, and it ran in, down the pasture and into the pond where the cattle grazed, and his cattle actually had reproductive problems uh, for three seasons following uh, drilling operations. So I'd like to read um, uh, one or a couple pages from that. Okay, so this was uh, the chapter of um, Sharon and Wade. And so this is um, just the, at the very end of the chapter, sort of summarizes the case. Wade's case further touches on the issue of land use. Wade did not lease his land directly, but rather purchased leased land, land that he never expected to be drilled, particularly since the lease was more than 60 years old when he purchased the property. When the drilling companies exercised their legal right to drill, the farm was divided by access roads and the fencing was compromised. The portion of the land that was restored after the wells were put into production was restored in a way that no, was no longer suitable for hay production and grazing. Essentially, the drilling company permanently altered Wade's land. Beyond these material changes, the bottom line for Wade and a number of other farmers with whom we have spoken is simply a matter of respect. If his, farm, if his right to farm and the integrity of his land had been respected, if his concerns for the health of his cattle and horses had been respected, the loss of the water that supplied his house had been acknowledged and dealt with respectfully, his attitude toward all the problems he encountered would have been different. Instead, he has been arrested for protesting contaminated trash in his hayfield, is forced to purchase drinking water, and has lost more money than he's gained in royalties due to the devastation drilling has brought to his farm. After all the work he has done on his house and land, I wondered if Wade would ever leave this farm. 
He said that he would move in a minute to a place that has good water, but only under one condition, that he could bring his cattle and horses with him. If I can't take my animals with me, he said, ain't no sense living. I'll go down dying right here because I've got farming in my blood. And this was really typical. A lot of farmers, I heard this from so many farmers, they said, you know, we're, we're not going to move. We can't move. No matter how bad things get here, this is my life. This is my livelihood. Okay, so, so this, um, this case um, uh, occurred in Bradford County. This is northeast Pennsylvania, another intensively drilled area. Um, and this uh, case um, uh, had 13 shale gas wells within two miles, and 11 of 13 of those were unconventional. So there were several that were vertical uh, wells that had not been drilled horizontally uh, and were not high volume. Um, um, so this was a case where uh, these people, it was two women who were breeding dogs, they had moved to this area, had bought um, this land. Um, there, they had surface rights but not mineral rights. The mineral rights had been sold. Um, they didn't know about the drilling issue. They didn't know this was coming. Um, they were there for two years. Everything was fine. Um, drilling hit. Their water quality changed. Their dogs stopped drinking the water. I think that was the first thing they said. They told me. And these were big dogs. You can see a picture right there. Those are Newfoundlands. Um, so they had uh, reproductive uh, problems coincident with the water and air contamination. Um, so um, we, we walked around their property. We, we got a tour of that whole area. It was pretty amazing how close all these wells were. So I just want to read uh, one section of this uh, where we walked into the backyard uh, where another well was going to be placed on the neighbor's property. Okay, so I was thinking about her house, her dogs, her life, her options. Uh, she seemed able to read my mind. This is Samantha. This is a chapter from Samantha and Jesse. Uh, I was sold my property with potable water, but now if I were to put it on the market, would you buy it? Would you come here and buy this beautiful piece of property? If the water smells so bad, it makes you want to throw up. If you have to take a shower four hours before company arrives so you can air the house out, she knew the answer to this question, but she was looking for advice. What, would she, what should she do? I had no clear-cut answers. And this is Samantha. I've spent 40 years of my life to be able to get this, be able to buy this property and farm this land, to have the American dream. And the corporations came in and took it away from us overnight. Okay, so this is, um, this is a community um, that's in Butler County, so this is uh, north, or so, sort of, sort of, it's above, it's above Washington County, so it's, it's uh, out that way in, in Pennsylvania, western uh, Pennsylvania. Um, so this was uh, a, a community that was originally a, um, a hunting um, uh, area for people to go and hunt. It actually uh, turned out to be that all that uh, mineral rights were leased, they could buy their surface uh, rights and they were small lots of land out, out there. Um, they were segregated not only in where they were located within this town but also in the services that they received. They didn't receive the services that the rest of the town members received. Uh, the roads were not well taken care of. 
Uh, their mailboxes were all out by the end of the road, sort of like you know, an apartment complex, I guess you could say, but they were real houses and it was a real community. Um, so what happened with them is, uh, again, a very, very highly intensively drilled areas, area. They were surrounded by 15 shale gas wells within one mile. Um, so that's a lot. Um, and, and what happened with them was that their water was, was really good. In fact, they had neighbors come over and family come over to their house to, to get water from their well water. It was so good. Uh, when it changed, it was dramatic. It, the, the appearance of it was dramatic, but they also became incredibly ill. Uh, they became incredibly ill with vomiting and diarrhea, and they also had a dog that died two weeks later that also became ill. Also striking is the fact that the people that had come to the house to take the water also became ill. Um, and they weren't the only ones. They had other people in the community come by to ask them if they were sick. So about a third of this community had become ill. This is a case that has been researched by university professors in that area of Pittsburgh and is a part of a journal that our paper will occur in uh, to the one that is coming out soon and is in press. So this community has been well studied. Um, so, uh, the, so what happened with this case? So they had a lot of water uh, contamination. Uh, the Pennsylvania DEP ordered the drilling company to provide um, drinking water on uh, water buffaloes. A water buffalo is a container that can hold somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 gallons of water that people mostly use for showers or for washing dishes or for laundry. Um, you're not supposed to drink it. It's not supposed to be that clean. Um, at any rate, so they ordered them to provide water. In the meantime, the drilling company hired a hydrogeologist and environmental testing company to try to figure out if it really was due to drilling. And their conclusion was that it was not. It didn't have anything to do with drilling. Uh, so the Pennsylvania DEP told them it was okay to remove all those water buffaloes and stop providing these people with, with drinking water. Um, and so now I'm going to read uh, a part of the book uh, that relates to this. By March 2012, the drilling company removed all the water buffaloes from the, from the Wasserman's neighbors forcing the small, quiet community to ask for help. Claire led the water drive with the assistance of local churches and organizations, even though she was being treated for leukemia, seizures, and renal failure. When I asked how she managed this, she replied, somebody has to. They are hurting as much as I am. By late 2013, 36 families were receiving water donations. When the drive began in March 2012, only 12 families were receiving water. I recalled an update from Claire in June 2012. At that time, a neighbor had become very ill after drinking her well water. Claire brought her bottled water and said that the woman was feeling better within 24 hours. But there is another motivation for Claire, Mrs. Claire. I'm becoming bitter because they, the drilling company, did this to my community. And how dare they? My community, if somebody, someone dies, we gather food or clothing or vouchers, fire, we do the same thing. That's our community. But how dare they do this to us? How dare they cut off our water? Claire had remained calm throughout our discussion, but now was outraged. I was getting very angry, very bitter, and I channeled myself into this water problem. A lot of people have asked me, why do you do it? And how can you do it? You know, you're living without water yourself. I tell them, I wake up every morning thinking about water, from my coffee in the morning, until sleep at night. Every waking second of my day is consumed by water. 
but two hours a day when I leave my house, bringing water to my neighbors and listening to what they have to say. It is so therapeutic. I asked Claire if it's true what I read in her local, local newspaper, that she not only distributes water, but also pays for water for others when donations are low. I got a call the other day from a neighbor in need of water, she said. I just paid for it. And this neighbor said, why didn't you tell us? I said, because you wouldn't accept it from me. That's why I gave you a hug and walked away. They know I'm sitting here without water. There are people in this community. If someone is out of water before water day, they give up their water for somebody else. That's just the way this community is. Unbelievable. We get beyond people helping other people. This is beyond that. Okay, so this is the last uh, thing I'm, I'm going to talk about, and it's actually the first uh, chapter in the book. Um, this is a case that took place in Washington County, um, again, southwestern Pennsylvania, and this actually is two cases in one, so it's two neighbors, um, and they were uh, surrounded by more than 20 shale gas wells within two miles, and the closest one was, was within a mile, the closest pad was within a mile, and it had a large impoundment that was leaking. Uh, they didn't know that at the time when we started documentation. Um, so what happened here was um, the neighbors between them had water quantity and quality changes, uh, uh, as well as air contamination uh, later. Um, one of the families had, um, uh, had two children, and one of those children became early, very early on in this process, like soon after drilling and frack fracking, became uh, sick with uh, general... Um, uh, GI issues, uh, fatigue, uh, just general problems. No one could diagnose it, had lots of testing, no one could figure it out. But at the same time, the animals that these two neighbors owned started becoming sick and dying and no one could figure it out. They brought the animals to their vets, they had them worked up, uh, they kept coming back to most likely uh, toxins or poisons or what was your animal exposed to and they kept coming up and saying, we don't know, what, what was it? Um, so uh, uh, all that happened to these two neighbors. One of the neighbors moved. Uh, the other one is still there. Um, the picture that you see up there was an art project, and that was done by one of the children um, for school. And, and the picture up there on the right is one of these women, uh, the one who moved, who has to return to her house to look after it, uh, to keep it, try to keep it up as much as possible, because she, couldn't, she just decided to move out for the, her health and the health of her her children and animals. Um, when she does return to the house, she wears a respirator. Um, and when she's there for an hour or two, she develops this rash. It's been diagnosed as a chemical dermatitis. She leaves the area. If she stays away for a couple weeks, this will go away. If she goes back, it will come back. Um, so what I'd like to do is, uh, is read a little bit, but I just want to say one word about um, the moving. We've had a number of cases move and that's documented in our paper. Um, with our follow-up, since we wrote that paper, we've had several more move. In all of those cases, their health has improved. The people and animals' health has improved. However, they're still not back to normal. Uh, these people have had a few years of exposures to compounds that are really toxic. Uh, carcinogens like benzene, uh, teratogens like benzene, toluene, and xylene. A teratogen is a substance that can cross the placenta and cause birth defects. Uh, they've had exposure to 
environmental uh, endocrine disrupting uh, chemicals, EDCs. They've had exposure to an immunosuppressants. So their health is not back to normal, but it is improved. So I'm going to finish uh, by reading um, um, a paragraph that actually could pertain to any of these uh, cases. Many proponents of gas drilling consider families such as these sacrificial lambs. They have lost their way of life so that the rest of us can continue to enjoy ours. We can purchase our 100,000 BTU barbecue grills and heat our poorly insulated homes to 75 degrees in the dead of winter. They are told that they are being patriotic, supplying the energy needs to our country so that we do not have to import oil from the Middle East. At the same time, multinational corporations are purchasing leases in Pennsylvania and planning to ship the gas to China and other lucrative markets. In most cultures, lambs that are sacrificed are treated with some respect, objects of reverence before the ultimate deed. Our sacrificial lambs are objects of derision that are cast aside and made to beg for water. Thank you. Okay. We'll make a few additional comments and we'll take questions. Um, I just want to, I don't want you to leave you with the impression that we're the only one that, the ones that have found any health effects uh, uh, from this process. I just mentioned a few other people just so you have some idea. There are many more studies, but uh, there are a couple of studies of large numbers of people in Texas, uh, Pennsylvania, in Colorado, in one study, in Colorado, in another study. And it's, it was fun. This is just uh, studies of birth uh, statistics, and they found that uh, the first one actually is a, is a, was a graduate student at Cornell uh, who's now a professor at the University of Rochester, Elaine Hill. She found that they had low, the babies had an average of low birth weight and APGAR scores uh, when they live close to the well, wells versus not so close to wells. APGAR scores is just an early measure of cognitive uh, function. Uh, and Lisa McKenzie found some congenital heart defects associated with proximity to gas wells. There have been also a number of uh, surveys done with just self-reporting health symptoms. Nadia Steinzor here and Peter Rabinowitz uh, more recently. And basically what they found are a predominance of skin conditions and upper respiratory system sy symptoms associated with living close to gas wells. Uh, there, also, there was also a study showing that stress is a really comp common symptom. And there was one industry-supported uh, study that showed that there was not an increase in childhood cancer if you live uh, near a well for a year or so. Uh, cancer takes a while to develop, so um, you can evaluate that how you like. Um, anyway, so let me talk about just a few other issues. Uh, one that, that really bothers us, I, I, should, I could have mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to mention it now, uh, and that is there's a lot of wastewater produced in this process, a few million gallons of wastewater um, from each well. Uh, not only the, the water that goes into the formation, but then what comes back up is even more toxic because it has radioactive materials, heavy metals, uh, and uh, a number of other things in it, high, very high salt. Uh, so where does it go? In Pennsylvania, it used to go to water treatment plants. Uh, it still does to some extent. Some of it does, but not all of it. Uh, and that, that's still problematic, but not as bad as it used to be. A lot of it is recycled, which is a good thing, and that's what they're proposing to do here in Maryland. 
uh, but you still have to get rid of it. And how you get rid of it is either with the waste treatment plants or the other way, is, another important way is injection wells. That is just to shove it deep into the ground, into wells. Now, this is, in principle, sounds like such, not such a bad idea because we're getting this toxic stuff away from us. Uh, th there are a few things that cause problems. One is that, you know, we're using all this, this water and now we're completely taking that water out of the hydrologic cycle. You can talk about how much water that, for example, a golf course uses. It's a, it's a large amount of water, millions of gallons of water, but it stays within the hydrologic cycle. When, the, when you put this water into injection wells, it's gone. The other thing about injection wells is that it's been shown, they've been shown to cause earthquakes. Uh, and there's been a great increase in earthquakes, particularly in Oklahoma, but also in Ohio, Kansas, uh, Arkansas, and a few other places. Um, we've also heard that people have heard that fracking, hydraulic fracturing causes earthquakes, and for a long time we thought that wasn't wasn't true. Uh, it, it is fairly rare, but actually there are now some really pretty good documented cases. Just recently in Alberta, there was a, a, an earthquake that was 4.5 on the Richter scale caused by not the injection well, but hydraulic fracturing itself. So other uses. Uh, some of the wastewater has been spread on roads, and it's called beneficial use for, for <laughs> I know, uh, for uh, um, keep it for, for de-icing as well as keeping dust down. There's some minimal testing on this, but uh, there have been some really horrendous problems with it as well. There has been a proposal to use it for a water softener pellets. Um, they say it's, they can make it 97% pure. Um, that's, that's, I find a little problematic. And the other thing is that they can, that, that has been done in many places is to spread it on fields as fertilizer, and this is an example of that. Uh, that's mainly the drill cuttings, but there's also wastewater that's been spread. Uh, this was tested not long ago um, in, a, in a forest in West Virginia to see how it w would work out. All the trees died. That was published recently. Okay. Oh, and there's one other thing. The EPA allows in the West, not here, in the West, allows the use of wastewater for, for giving, you're actually able to give it to cattle to drink. Um, as far as I know, this has never been done with this high volume hydraulic fracturing, but it, it is on the books and it is legal in some places. Okay, we talked about uh, well, we've already talked about these, so I'm, I'll, I'll just skip these. Okay, I just want to talk about a few other things uh, that w we're concerned or that make us think about, uh, you know, what to do, what to do uh, about uh, trying to learn more about this process. But one thing I want to point out before I get to that is that, you know, one of the things that we're told a lot is that we, we really shouldn't be concerned about this process because hydraulic fracturing fluid is really just water and salt and a, and a little bit of chemicals, 1%. Okay, so I want you, want you to think about what that means for a second. So what does 1% mean? Well, if, 
I went to an oil and gas executive and offered them a cocktail. And I said, okay, this is 1% bourbon. How, what do you feel about that? Okay. Now, alcohol, you know, we use gallons and gallons, oh, thousands of gallons of alcohol in our society all the time. But one thing you realize is that it is a really weak drug. It doesn't, you know, the reason why it gets people drunk, it causes all these problems, is people consume such mass quantities of it, but it's weak. So 1% isn't very much. But what about other things? Well, I, I did a little, had a little fun, looked some stuff up, and I looked at some chemicals that have been shown to be involved in, in the oil and gas industry that's found in, found in wastewater. These are polyaromatic hydrocarbons is what they're called. I just looked at what percentage they work on different systems in the body. And you can see how potent they are. So there's point oh 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 you, know, you get the idea. On this receptor, some of them work at really low concentrations on the estrogen receptor. So when we talk about 1%, if you're a marketing manager, you could sell that as something like a small concentration. But if you're a biologist and trying to understand the toxicity of these things, when I hear 1%, that's enormous. Okay, so what do we do about this? How do we learn learn what's going on? Well, one of the things that we're told is that, well, now, after all this time, we're going to do some testing. And we're going to test before and after. But what does that really mean? Well, we do believe that air and water should be tested before and after drilling. But there, we don't always know what to test for. and you know, what we don't always know what has been used in hydraulic fracturing. We don't always know what's come up from the shale. So we have some serious problems. Uh, we have to identify sometimes those chemicals, but we don't know what they are. Uh, de the detection levels in that laboratories use are often above the concentrations where they work in our body. We don't even know what the safe concentrations for most of them are. We don't know the effect of mixtures. And this is the thing that really bothers me. The, the levels are not stable. So if you went out to try to measure how much air pollution was at a site, you can go on a day when the wind is blowing in a particular direction and not measure anything. You go on another day, you can measure something. So it goes up and down, up and down. It's not so much important what it is at any given time, but it's really more important what happens over time. So what we need to worry about is temporal changes in levels of contaminants and also what do we do about these unknown uh, chemicals. So one of the things we're working on trying to do now, what's our next step, is to try to find ways of getting around this. And we have a couple of ways. Uh, one, we, we ask questions like, uh, are there, we, we just ask whether chemicals in water, for example, can affect systems in our body without even asking a question of what's there. Just are there things in the water that can affect our body? And secondly, and this is what we're most excited about, is passive monitoring. That is, we can put out pieces of silicone in water, in the air, and wait two or three weeks, and those pieces of silicone just accumulate material on them 
over time, and then we can retrieve them, take it back to a lab. We, co we collaborate with a lab in Oregon um, run by Kim Anderson, and she can take those and extract them and look what chemicals are there. We're not asking, you know, what individual, well, she has a method of determining uh, what chemicals are there, what, what chemicals are there more globally, so she can identify more than 1,500 chemicals at one time in just one pass. So we think these are the, th these are the things we need to do to try to understand whether, what's going on here. Here we go. Okay, but let me, let me explain to you what I, I'm thinking about and what, what uh, kind of worries me more than anything else. Um, if you were to, let's think about, you know, taking, you know, your, your doctor giving you a drug for something and what happens. Well, if, if, if you have a headache and your doctor gives you an aspirin or ibuprofen or something like that, you take it, you absorb it, it goes up into your, your blood levels go up and then your blood levels go down to zero and somewhere during this time here we hope that your headache goes away. If you're taking a drug, maybe uh, you have high cholesterol and you're taking Lipitor, you start taking it, your levels go up and they start to go down, but then you take it again, your levels go up, they start to go down, etc., etc. Eventually it gets to a steady state level. It stays here as long as you take the drug. So I think of this in terms of how people are exposed to drilling chemicals. Sometimes if you're just in the area and they flare a well briefly or you get exposed to a truck going by, your blood levels can rise and fall. And it may not be such a big deal. But if you're somewhere where there's a continuous exposure, like your well water is, is contaminated, if you're near a processing plant where they're putting out um, pollution continuously, or maybe a lot of times what they do is put out more at night, so it goes up and down and up and down, but you're exposed to it continuously, then you can reach these steady state levels, and that's where I think we can have serious health consequences. Um, so these are the things that, that I, th these are the, the risks that I think are important, water contamination in, place, in places where there are continuous emissions like processing plants or near a, a wastewater impoundment that continually gives off pollution. Okay, so one of the things we do in our book is we, we end it by saying that we can't just say no to everything. We have to find a way forward into a better society somewhere where we don't have to worry so much about climate change, where we don't have to worry so much about health effects from this type of pollution. And, and we think that we can do this, it's possible. Uh, the best place to start, perhaps, is trying to decrease our energy use. That's the cheapest, uh, most, most effective way to contribute to the problems that we're talking about today. But, but there are other ways. We believe that solar energy is part of the mix, wind energy is part of the mix. There are a lot of places where we can do this. And when you say, well, we can't really do that because it's too expensive and these are not reliable, et cetera. Well, there, there, is quite, there have been studies showing that we can power every state with renewable energy 
if we do it right. And if we ask the question, is it cost-effective? I just want to leave you with this. We have an industry that's been supplying us with fossil fuels for 150 years or more. They have been subsidized by our government, either subsidized or they don't pay for ex external costs like pollution. But in fact, we have borne the cost much more than we pay for the fossil fuels. So they've been subsidized. Renewable energy is subsidized as well, but by a much smaller fraction than fossil fuels. So if we tip the playing field toward renewable energies, we can transform our energy from fossil fuels to a clean energy future where we can move forward. Thank you. And we're really happy to answer questions or discuss anything else that you'd like. Okay. The last case you gave it was Sarah Joseph. You said uh, they were about a mile from the closest wells. Right from the closest pad. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in Maryland, the so-called gold standard calls for a 2,000-foot setback, which is less than half a mile. Right, yeah. So... Um, I think it's really hard to come up with any regulations. I mean, it, you know, should we say five miles from the pad? Should we say 10 miles? That study that Robert showed um, there in Colorado with the birth defects was those babies were within 10 miles. Babies within 10 miles and babies outside. Babies within 10 miles had significantly higher birth defects. So how do, what do we draw from that with regulations? You know, I don't think we have enough science to say what is the best if we're gonna try and regulate this industry and try to prevent health problems, what are the best regulations? I, I don't think we have enough information yet. I think it would be important. These are, I think these are huge red flags that our health commissioner in New York paid attention to and said there are too many red flags. We need more science to come in. We've had over 400 papers come in within the last year on this subject. So, and it's growing exponentially. So there's a lot of science out there to do, a lot more to be done, and it takes time. This isn't something that can be done overnight. So in the meantime, are we supposed to have you guys be uh, like an experiment, like guinea pigs, to make sacrifices? In the meantime, some of you get sick and some of you not? I don't think so. I think we're past that. And, and I think we, we know a better way and we have to move towards that way. In the meantime, we keep getting the science on this. Can I, can I say one, I'd like to say one more thing. It's, you know, we haven't, we're just here briefly in Maryland, and we, we're learning about what's going in, on in Maryland. And, and uh, the, the thing that bothers me a little bit is this gold standard that you refer to. Uh, well, I, I think you should all realize, we, we've talked to regulators from all over the country, and in fact, all over the world, and there is not one that does not have the gold standard. They all have the best regulations in the world. And I read Maryland's <laughs> recommendations, and, and they are marginally better than Pennsylvania for some things, but it's, it's really far from what anybody 
who's concerned about this process would ever call a gold standard. You had your hand up first. I'm just curious um, if you've had any conversations with people in industries, business, around your book, things that you found, what came out of the conversations that you had. Okay. Well, all right. Well, we the one thing I, I can say is the industry has ignored it. We haven't heard anything back from them. But we one of the things that we did do because uh, we're really interested in in what people inside the industry think about these processes and everything. We we tried to talk to his workers, people who actually have been on the on the pads doing the work, and we ended up, you know, getting about four or five of them. I think five in the end to, that would allow us to talk to them. Some were current workers, some were former workers. And we finally published an interview with one of them who was a really well-spoken, very intelligent guy who'd worked many years on, as a driller. And his, his father had also done that. And we published the interview with him uh, not long ago in a journal called New Solutions. It's in, in the list of uh, of references, if you want to pick it pick it up here, but he he gave us a lot of insights on on what workers go through uh, and some of the, some of the some of the good things about the industry, like making a lot of money, uh, but also you know some of the dangers and some of the some of the ways that people get injured, etc. Yes, it would seem that uh, to me that uh, one of the big problems is groundwater contamination and contamination with Well, but yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly one of one of the biggest concerns. I mean, air and water are both um, con incredible concerns that we have. Um, what what you'll hear a lot is that they're drilling so f you know the fracking occurs way down below in the shale a mile down or more uh so you really don't need to be concerned with that um there are a couple things about that one is that most of the instances of contamination that we have seen have come not from a hydraulic fracturing itself but like spills on the surface or faulty casings on the wells that are not necessarily associated with hydraulic fracturing per se. However, there are cases not very far from here where they hydraulically fracture coal seams, and that's actually done right in an aquifer. And that can contaminate water directly. Okay. So I think it's a I mean I think it's obviously it's a huge issue and that's what we're, we're concerned with. Yes. Well, 
the thing about the uh, Pennsylvania uh, Department of Environmental Protection is I have found with these cases that we've had in Pennsylvania, they are very inconsistent. There'll be the case that I talked about with the quarantine. They actually went in there and they did something. They were concerned. And there was the other case I presented also in Pennsylvania, the blowout. Somebody from the DEP came and told the farmer, no problem. He said, what about my cows? Are they going to suffer because of these drilling of fluids in this geyser? No, no problem. Your cows will be fine. He did not fence off that pond until he started to have stillborn calves, so many stillborn calves. He made that connection and he fenced off the pond. But then it was too late because his cattle were exposed. So here was the same regulatory agency doing two different things. So they are so inconsistent. That's um, that's a big thing. So and I found, but I found overall uh, with all the states that we've been in and talked to people that people are very uh, upset and uh, dissatisfied with the regulatory agency. They feel that they work more along with the drillers than to protect them. But you also have to remember that in most states, you can figure which states where it's broken up. Uh, Okay, so here you guys are, are lucky here in the fact that your one agency does the, does the regulation and one does the, the permitting. So, um, but in, in most, oh, they are together, okay. All right, so, okay. So, so when they're together, there's that conflict of interest. And so who, is the, who are they gonna protect? Are they gonna protect, you know, are they working for the drillers or are they, are they trying to protect the people? So that's a problem. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that's true. I mean, the agriculture is a is a is a major source of methane in the atmosphere. A few places it comes from. Uh, rice farming is one place. Uh, the other is is cows. I mean, cows produce a lot of methane, and uh, there there are, there are drugs that you can give them to keep you t <laughs> to keep them from producing so much methane, and that's what's done in feedlots. Uh, but they they produce. Of something on 25 to 30 percent of the methane in the air. Well, you're going to hate my answer. Yeah, you're really going to hate my answer because the the concentrated feeding. Uh, operations feed them monensin which which the idea is that methane is a waste product for them but they 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 erupt they burp it out basically mostly and, and what monensin does with, is what they give them is it decreases that so they put more of that into the into the chemicals that they they can digest and so per cow they're probably producing less methane than the, than the cows on the, the, the the grass-fed cows. Well, that's another issue. That's another issue. I'm just talking about the cows themselves. But yeah, you're right. That's that's another. Well, well yeah, and just one more thing about the capos. Those those animals are fed. They get, get so many chemicals. You're talking about so many chemicals because they're trying to produce an animal that says you know as lean as possible. They're trying to produce an animal that's not going to keel over because there are too many animals living too close together. So there's so many things wrong with that that I feel that even though they do produce you know, less methane there, that there, this other stuff outweighs it tremendously. Yeah. So Paul. Yeah. 
Yep, that's true. And all these and all these uh, cases are in litigation. And if you searched the internet really, really well and spent a lot of time, you could probably find them because they have all spoken out at one time or another. Right. So people often say, well, "Why can't the federal government do that? Could they do a better job?" I know that in the case of this last family, that EPA, this is that their farm is part of the national grass. Right, right. And the EPA attorneys told their attorney, I can't tell your clients not to drink the water. Right. That's right. So that was in, that's in the book. Uh, and so, yeah, so that is in the book, uh, Paul. So my point is, this goes all the way to the top. Absolutely. And so, and so that particular case, and that wasn't the only one, we had actually three that are in that EPA hydraulic uh, uh, fracturing water study. And so for me, when I saw what the EPA was testing, the chemicals they were testing, it was incredible. So they are really trying to cover a broad base there. But the other incredible thing was that most of those chemicals do not have what we call MCLs, or maximum contaminant levels. What does that mean? That means that we don't know what the level is that could affect our health. They don't know. We haven't determined and done the health research on these chemicals to know how dangerous they are. So we had several of these people had fracturing fluid chemicals in their water. Now, their pre-water test wasn't tested for this, so the drilling company can always say, well, you always had that in your water. It's not our fault, right? But they have it in their water at a level that we don't even know, we don't have an MCL for, to know whether that's safe or not. So I think there are all those levels on top of there. But the fact that they were not told and could not be told not to drink their water in a letter form. It really talks a lot about accountability all the way up. Yeah. I mean, the request I wanted to make is that I, I live in Western America. I live in Gaston. I'm here in France and also in America. And uh, to follow up what Thomas was saying about the legislation, it's really important that people who live in urban and suburban parts of the state contact their state legislators. It's one, I have no representation Hopefully you all do be better off. Uh, but if you contact your state legislator and say, I don't want fracking in Maryland, that is huge. So please do that. I think they've had their hand up. <laughs> Let's take the man in the back. Yeah, so they're in all different, uh, uh, all different stages of litigation. Uh, typically what happens is, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, but what I'm seeing with these cases, and we're in years now, is that something will come up and it'll get delayed or put off. But they'll have to be deposed again, meaning they'll have to, the, uh, the people who are making the charge, the people who are, whose water is bad, will have to come up and go through the whole questioning line by the lawyers again. 
So they come up with things to delay the cases. Meanwhile, these people, like the last case I talked about there, which is actually the first chapter in the book, have had to move out. Financially, they could not afford that. They're in really dire straits right now. That mom put her health of her children first. Uh, she moved out to save her children, basically. And she's in, she's in dire financial, financial straits, and she's in this lawsuit, too. Because she, is, she tells me over and over again, this is not fair what they've done to me. I won't let them get away with this. So, um, so they're in all, all different stages. We also have had, uh, uh, had the door shut because of non-disclosure or gag orders. So we've had one, the only case that we've had uh, worked up really the best and completely, and it's the case where the people did not, they refused to talk to us because of the gag order. And it was the very first case I mentioned where the half of the, half of the uh, herd died within an hour of exposure to hydraulic fracturing fluids, which are 1% chemicals. So that's an animal that's about 1,200 pounds dropping within an hour. To me as a veterinarian, that's pretty, something pretty toxic. But the drillers say, no, it wasn't our fault. Uh, and, and then something happened in the meantime there between all the documentation that I got right up to the last two labs where they shut the door on me and they said, we cannot give you any more information. This is done. You cannot, that's, that's it on your research. So, so I'm sorry to not give you a, a better answer, but um, that's what usually happens. And they, so these people get forced into settling because they just can't live anymore. They need money to live on. They can't go on years and years. Um, so we'd like to see these cases go through to the end and really get a good settlement, but not be gagged. But that's what usually happens. Go ahead. Actually, we do discuss that in the book, so I would tell, tell you, go ahead and read the book. And people, people do lease for different reasons, and people, there are several cases that I mentioned tonight where they bought the land where the mineral rights were already leased. Um, so everybody's in a different situation. Um, do you want to mention yeah. it? Uh, I just want to say one thing. I, I mean, I'm not sure exactly where you're going on this, but I, I really hesitate 
to to point fingers at the people who have leased because I think some of them have leased out of desperation. Some of them have leased because they've they've been doing it forever in Pennsylvania, and they that's how they grew up. I think you know this is a this is the issue is really environmental justice, and what's really gone on here is most of this is done in air, rural areas where they can get people to sign to save their farm. And you don't, I, I, I haven't seen one drilling rig or processing plant in Central Park in New York, you know? Uh, so it's not being done in wealthy areas generally, okay? So if we want people to sacrifice and be patriotic and let us drill their land and get our gas, I think we're asking them, we're asking too much. Because I think the people that should be patriotic and should be taking care of us are these companies that refuse to pay taxes in our country and refuse to uh, go along with reasonable environmental regulations and fight any effort to put a carbon tax on their uh, on their operations to fund all the damage they do. I just want to add one um, thing. The one, one point you made was that they are so powerful that, you know, what can we do? We can't do anything. Um, you know, when this uh, came uh, in New York, the idea of this coming to New York, uh, we realized pretty quickly that uh, our federal government wasn't going to protect us. Our state government uh, wasn't going to protect us. So it really came down to the local level. And if you know the history of what's happened in New York, then you'd know that groups did organize uh, at the town board level. Uh, people had meetings. Um, what was going to happen in each town came up. Uh, and, and that's the level that it was fought at. And that's the level that it was fought at in the courts. And then that we were lucky in New York that the, at the state level, they looked all around before they made the decision. So I wouldn't say, okay, they're so powerful. What can we do? We can't do anything. They are very powerful. But there are power in numbers and people getting together and doing things. Right. Right. Well, I don't think it is published yet. It's not. When are we going to get it? 
Yeah, yeah, the, 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 the Pennsylvania study is in press. It will come out at some point. Economic journals, it's an economic journal. We don't know which one. They take a long time. The other two studies, <laughs> it's going to be a long time. So, so they're not on There's a compendium of all everything that's been published oh, that was done. That. Okay, you know about that. that. Okay, okay, but I, I don't know about about. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where all the, whether there's a list of that, but that's that's good. Sir, you had your hand up for a long time. Yeah, I just kind of answer my question about the yeah. research study. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's we we've talked about that a lot. Right, so my understanding of that is that they are, I don't know how well documented they are. I know they talk to the people, but I don't know if they've actually gone out and gathered the documentation on the drilling and the fracking events, have mapped those houses, have mapped what's around them, have collected the results, and have, I don't think I mentioned it because it's part of our research, but we, all, we put all that on a timeline. And we start five years before drilling came to the area, so each case is its own control, and, and layer the health records on top of that so that then we can get exposure data. So I've got tons of data on all these cases. Um, so I'm not sure, well, I don't, I don't dismiss it. I'm just saying that I couldn't stand behind it and just say that it's documented because I haven't done the documentation. I, I think it's important though. I mean, I think it was Jenny Lissick who's done yeah, that. Yeah, and I, th I think it's really important because we have a sense of the, the number of people that are concerned, okay? We, you know, I think each one of those studies, each one of those cases, need to be studied in more detail. But I think she's done a, a service by giving us an idea of how many people are, are worried about it and, and feel that they have problems. Okay. Hi, it's Mark. We have staff. 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 We
Thank you.